0: Hi everyone and welcome to the 92nd episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Abby Beringer, Student Program Manager here at the Atlas Society, the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in creative ways, including through our Atlas University seminars, graphic novels, and our creative social media content. Today we will be discussing two current event topics, the Canadian trucker protests and the possibility of a war between Russia and the Ukraine. We have two of our amazing senior scholars, Atlas society founder dr david kelly and atlas society senior scholar and economist dr richard salzman Uh, we will be doing q a at the end of each topic so make sure to post your questions in the chat on zoom facebook instagram twitter or youtube and with that thank you for joining us and i'm handing things over to dr salzman to begin with uh, canadian trucker protests
1: Thank you, Abby. Great to see you, David. And thanks all to the Atlas Society folks who put this together again. Always great to, to see David and talk to about current events from a philosophic angle. Uh, so we picked these two. David and I were talking about these a few days ago. We picked these two because we think they have some philosophic significance. Now I'll start with comments on truckers and uh and love to hear David's comments because uh, I know some of them and they're really good. I, I think this is an encouraging thing Uh, Mostly because I've been against the more authoritarian approach to COVID, uh, not just in Canada, but in the U.S. and elsewhere. Uh, Sweden has been one of the rare cases that has not uh, had an authoritarian approach. Who would have expected that? Certainly not Bernie Sanders, who loves Sweden so much. But uh, a couple of questions. Why Canada? Uh, Most people do not think of Canadians as rebels. Uh, Canada was founded by uh, mostly the loyalists who were not rebels in the American Revolutionary cause. But uh, we love Canada. Americans love Canada. It's a very interesting thing. So these truckers, you probably know the story. I won't repeat the story, but a, a huge convoy from west to east ending up in Ottawa, where they're basically shutting the city down, demanding that the mask mandates be lifted. Now, the truckers you know, this has been going on for two years or so. So it's not like they have not faced restrictions uh, up to now, they have. So what is the what, what is the issue now? You know, the feeling that with these minor, with these more moderate versions of COVID uh, like Delta and then Omicron, uh, the feeling even in America, I think is, what is the point now? Uh, it, all, it was already authoritarian, I thought. And then the thinking now is why is the authoritarian, why are the authoritarian measures remaining? So it's a very interesting, it is an organized, it's not a spontaneous thing up there. It's definitely organized by a few people if you look at the story. Um, They're very peaceful. So this is not BLM and Antifa ripping up American cities uh, in summer of 2020. So you can credit them for that. You could say it's a kind of shrugging, uh, which is also interesting, obviously, to this audience. The truckers are shrugging, uh, quitting in a way. Now they could have quit by just not driving their rigs at all. Uh, just stay home. That might have been less dramatic. Nobody would have noticed it. It's much more dramatic to drive your truck and jam up Ottawa. What are the? What are their demands? Simply lift the authoritarian measures. I mean, these are not crazy demands. Um, these are not defund the police. Uh, these are not let everyone out of prison. The demands we saw in 2020. So, from that uh, from that perspective, the motive, the technique being used. Uh, the message being sent, I have nothing but good things to say about this. And and frankly, I'm kind of wondering where's the equivalent movement in the United States? Why isn't there an equivalent kind of rebellious movement in the US? I don't know, maybe people are scared about the whole January 6th treatment of those political prisoners. Uh, you know, they dare not go to Washington because they'll end up in, in jails for a year without uh, any charges leveled against them. So that uh, I think is a good thing. Now notice the reaction though, uh, the Trudeau government is basically the last time I checked is, is bringing out kind of martial law type tactics. So first of all, they just blocked uh, access to heat, uh, uh, food, other things that the truckers might need and now invoking certain local ordinances saying, we get to basically uh, clear you out by force. Now, this would be quite a visual because there are videos all over the place in Ottawa of what's going on. And it's clear that the truckers are peaceful. If we have like a Tiananmen Square type thing, I'm not saying Canadian tanks. I'm just saying if there is a show of force in Canada, I I have a hard time believing this might happen. uh, But Trudeau is a real authoritarian. Um, That would, I think, uh, benefit the, the message of the truckers. Uh, and, and it is sparking some copycat moves in Europe and elsewhere, so that's interesting as well. I, I, I will say, however, and David and I have talked about this, I, I am a little reluctant because I'm a law and order guy. I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a law and order guy who even for our side, so to speak, I'm very um, tentative about civil disobedience that in, might infringe others' rights. Now, are people in Ottawa's rights being infringed by the truckers jamming up the city? yes, to some extent. Does it look, does it verge on anarchy? Yeah, a little bit, except they're not anarchists in the sense of destructive people. They just want their freedom back. So I throw that out there only because if there's a contingent in our listening group saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, if we were against Antifa and BLM in the streets, we should be against these truckers in the street. Again, I don't think they're the same kind of group, but I want to explore more the principle of how should a government handle civil disobedience in the streets when they're not technically privately owned. I suppose you could argue that because they're not privately owned, because they're publicly owned, any so-called part of the public can occupy the streets and complain about things. And what does the government got to say about it? You government, you're the ones who made the streets and the thoroughfares public, including the public squares. And remember, uh, what was it? Occupy Wall Street? How'd that happen? How'd that work? All the lefties gathering down on Wall Street, that was considered okay. That was considered moral. Last uh, idea I'll throw out there. It's a little more philosophical, a little more abstract. What is the nature of populist uprisings? Now, what do I mean by that? I'm not trying to denigrate what the truckers are doing, but this would fall in the category of, say, the Tea Party movement in the U.S. 10 years ago. So meaning an encouraging movement, but largely populist, meaning the broader populace is complaining. And and you could say rightly so. The question is whether that is what leads to real change. I'm skeptical of that. I think of this as more an encouraging spirit of life, attitude and reaction. But in terms of actually accomplishing things, I think the broad sweep of history says that intelligent, almost, I hate to say it, elitist change. Uh, you know, the founding fathers were not populists; They were elites. And they're the ones who overthrew uh, King George. And when the populist approach was tried in France, it was a disaster. You know, it led to the terror and stuff. So, So a revolution or rebelliousness, which is guided by reason and guided by, call it the accomplished, you know, beyond just I'm complaining, I'm fed up, I've had enough, uh, I'm mad as hell, and I'm not gonna take it anymore. Remember that line, David, from Network, I think, 1976. Um, so um, that's that's my qualification to all this. The Tea Party movement was a big pro-constitutional, actually, in some cases, a pro ayn rand type movement, if you remember 10 years ago. But when you look back and say, okay, what did it accomplish? We are full force toward Authoritarianism and fascism here ten years later. So, and not the fault of the Tea Party, but just a reminder that popular uprisings, while something that moves our hearts, if you're pro-liberty, don't seem to have the kind of lasting influence that we we hope they would. I hope that's enough to just throw out some some ideas to think about.
2: Yeah, uh, Richard, thank you. I I would just add a couple of things. One is. uh, That uh, part of the um, response of the Joe administration, and I think probably is a factor in in enraging the truckers, um, was his statement, uh, these are people with unacceptable ideas. Yeah, yeah. Far right (laughs) idiots that are, you know, um, and the uh, which is not true. I mean, they they have. you know, ending mandates, uh, and which is already in a, a kind of emergency power on the on the government's part, long-standing over two years now, is um, they're opposed. To, all they want is freedom. I mean, by contrast, with you know, in France, every once in a while, the farmers uh, take their tractors into Paris. Right, and,
1: right, right, yeah, that, yeah, they do because they're
2: not getting enough subsidies. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I, right, right. It's a terrible injustice,
2: David. We know. Oh, no, it's awful. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I, but it, it's interesting, you know, I agree with you completely about the Tea Party. I, I uh, there, some of the big demonstrations were here in Washington, and I went and attended some, talked to some of the people caring, um, who was John Dahl signs. Yeah, it was great.
1: And, um, and sales of Atlas Shrugged skyrocketed during
2: that period. They did, there. yes. Yeah. So um, you know, I'm I'm kind of a law and order guy too, but the yeah. state. This is a reaction to a state that is um, itself gone past the at least certainly the proper role of 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 the state. Definitely. And um, yeah. so I'm kind of I'm 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 certainly sympathetic, but you without without a philosophical understanding. Uh, I listened to one of the leaders or spokesmen for the group on a video this afternoon, um, who was saying, well, this, this is all about love for Canada and, uh, you know, unity and so forth. And, you know, I kept thinking, OK, he's a Canadian. He probably is, you know, is OK with socialized medicine. In oh, right.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. What about that freedom? The freedom yeah. of the doctors?
2: Yeah. So anyway. Um, but yeah, it's so really interesting. And if it resonates, it, it you know, it, it, I don't think it will do much on its own over time. But, you know, sometimes you just need a spark. Yeah. And then people, more thoughtful people may carry it forward. We'll have to and, see. And, and the Tea Party case, it
1: was, uh, who was it? it was Rick Santelli on CNBC. Ranting one morning, <laughs> saying, "Hey, hey, is anyone out there happy with uh, homeowners being bailed out or big banks being bailed out or Obamacare taking over your mat?" And it was, yes, it spread like a prairie fire. It, yeah, oh, it like, did did lead to something, but uh, you know what it led to? The ones who took it up and said, uh, "Let's be more intellectual about this," and let's. Uh, I, I remember they were particularly interested in. The Constitution and preserving and extending the Constitution. So the constitutionalism of the Tea Party approach, a limited government approach, mm-hmm. was really favorable. Was really good. And and the constitutionalism, as you know, David, is not necessarily populist. I mean, populist usually is, you know, pitchforks and we're the mob and we're bigger than you and we get to dictate terms to you. I don't see the truckers doing that. But um, anything that looks like shrugging. <laughs> And in a peaceful way, which is what the civil disobedience is, just withdraw your sanction, you know, I think works, yeah. it works really well. Uh, but they look like they're on the verge of, hey, they're messing up the city. So it's going to be maybe easy for Trudeau to turn them into perpetrator,
2: yeah. perpetrators
1: rather than victims. Do you have a forecast, David? What do you think will happen up there?
2: I don't know. They've already hauled the trucks off the uh uh, U.S. Canadian Bridge, Ambassador Bridge, I think it's Ambassador called. Ambassador Bridge to Detroit. That was uh, slowing car production and um, yeah. uh, contributing a little bit more to the uh, uh, bottleneck, supply bottlenecks that we're facing from COVID. And uh, and in that respect, you know, they they are having impacts on people. They, they are causing harm to people uh, by the standard of, you know, what they're paying taxes for, what they can expect reasonably of city streets and bridges, um, you know. It's
1: you know, you know, if you had the Trudeau approach, Trudeau would say Francisco is a terrorist because he's coming into the city and convincing people to go to the gulch, and and yeah. the more people he convinced, David, the more New York fell apart. You know, so so it wasn't it wasn't uh, the objectivists you know driving their trucks down into Wall Street, but um, you know you could make that case for anyone who shrugs. Yeah, They don't occupy the city, but they just leave. In a way, are they... No, they're leaving the city to the destroyers. So are they really the perps? No, they're not the perpetrators. They're withdrawing their sanction, and full, the full brutality of the barbarism is left exposed. By the way, David, do you remember when... We talk about these popular uprisings. When the students uh, went to Wall Street in, during the Vietnam War to protest as they should have. I I didn't support the Vietnam War either. Uh, You remember that it was the longshoremen who went into Wall Street and started beating up the students, the longshoremen (laughs) and the Teamsters. And and I remember Ayn Rand got a kick out of that. She said, this really shows something, the college educated students are the ones who are anti-American and anti-capitalist. And and look who came in and opposed them, uh, the truckers and and the, uh, the Teamsters and the longshoremen, if I recall other another interesting thing the teamsters again this is the truckers uh, union mm-hmm. support, supported reagan in 19 uh, in the 1980 campaign so so uh, just a little trucker history there for more than anything but um
2: that's interesting the uh the guys hauling those heavy heavy rigs um maybe have their feet on the ground so to speak
1: <laughs> a little, uh, more, with little with a, yeah where yeah that, that you mentioned trudeau by the way Yeah, not only the nasty comments, smearing them. He actually went out of his way to say, you know, I'm not against uh, protests in the street. For example, I supported uh, BLM in (laughs) know, So, I mean, he's on record. This is not a principled Trudeau saying, clear the public ways. No, no, he said, no, uh, you can occupy if if they're uh, left-wing terrorists like the kind I like. Terrible, terrible, terrible.
2: You know, there's an old saying that was uh, common in the uh, uh, anti-communist commentators in the 50s after World War II, um, referring to the communist people, the ex uh, you know who were still communists. Illnia uh, gauche, There is no enemy to the left.
1: Ah, oh, <laughs> I never heard that. Oh wow.
2: So the asymmetry here is, you know, still going on, still strong. Yeah.
1: I think also from the standpoint of America, the Trumpsters really like this. I mean, they're thinking this is more evidence that the the change we're seeing in recent years is more populist. And and we all know because the danger of populism is it can be anti-capitalist. Right. This particular, it can be, you know, anti Wall Street, anti elite, anti capitalist, all that kind of thing. Historically, it has been. But here, the popular uprising is against authoritarianism, clearly against authoritarianism. And it's the
2: quote unquote elites and establishment who are saying, no, we
1: get to tell you what to do. Shut up. Shut up and obey.
2: But I I should add, I'm noticing a comment from Chris Baker here Um, uh in in the chat room. the convoy by c w McCall i don't know that song, but um uh it was protest ag- against the fifty five mile hour speed limit. I remember in the seventies there was uh, a freeway going into i think it was Detroit. yeah and environmentalists uh, drove abreast across all the lanes that were and and at fifty five so everyone commuting into the into their offices uh-huh. were it was backed up for miles because no. no one obeys the fifty no no, yeah. no you. and i I wasn't part of that, but I was so angry. Uh-huh. I just wanted to wring the neck of every environmentalist I came across because, you know, someone who stops me from driving at the speed I want to drive is get. I, I have a special thing about that.
1: I don't know. <laughs> Kelly. I don't know, Kelly. You are so intolerant. Uh, uh, <laughs> where's the where's the benevolence? No, I agree. I agree. They were trying to prove a point, though. They were trying to say that you should be driving 55 and no. Yeah. More. save oil. Save oil. That would totally jam up everything. I drive around here in North Carolina and people are driving 75 miles an hour and there are no cops around. No one stops them. It's, yeah. am- it's remarkable. It's amazing. They don't have it as a priority. But you got to wear your mask.
2: <laughs> All <laughs> right.
1: But you can drive fast wearing your mask. <laughs> you wanna you wanna turn to Ukraine,
2: David? Should I'm we- sure. Emmy, sure. do you wanna go to the next topic or take questions?
0: Well yes. I was actually going to suggest we take a few questions first. Okay. And then we'll jump over to the Ukraine. So we'll get some on topic questions here. Uh, first question comes from Miranda Sivlas on Instagram. What do you think of this being the first time that Canada has used their emergency act, their emergencies act?
1: Well, it's true. I looked that up today and they haven't used it in a long time. It's so weird, right? Because COVID emergency dicti- dictates where masking and distancing and lockdowns and stuff. This one is is the one invoked for basically martial law. So uh, you know, what do I make of that? Uh, uh, this is Trudeau. What do they call it in uh, Vegas? Doubling down. I'm authoritarian on mask and COVID. You guys are protesting it now. I'm going to go all martial law on you. This is really uh, uh, remarkable and disturbing. At the same time, so my only, my only reaction is. Uh, that is unjust. It's improper. coming, But coming from a law and order guy, yeah, there should be law and order. But what's happening here is the government is engaged in lawlessness regarding COVID restrictions. So the popular uprising is we, we're sick and tired of this lawless government. <laughs> so what is it doing? It's imposing martial law or, or it's threatening to. Um, it's going in the wrong direction,
2: I would say.
0: Do you have any reaction, David, or? No, no, go ahead, Abby. Next question comes from Sean Woodson on Facebook. Doesn't it seem like the banks are being weaponized to do what the Canadian government cannot by freezing people's bank accounts?
1: (sighs) Uh, Yes, Uh, I'm sorry to interject, David. Do you want to comment about this, that they're telling the banks to shut off the truckers' cash flow? Did you know that? Oh, I didn't know that,
2: so I'll leave that to you, wow.
1: Uh, so the quick thing I'll just say on that is as a general principle, the more the welfare state expands, like the cancer that it is, the financial system is co-opted by the government. The banks gradually just become an arm of the government, of the treasury. And uh, that's why they all you know, accept bailouts. That's why they're all too big to fail enough. And all the privacy laws went away long ago. You can no longer have Swiss bank accounts and things like that. So so all, another disturbing trend. Yes, the banks will do whatever the government says it uh, it should do. And by the way, we're eventually going to talk about Russia and, and Ukraine, but you're listening, you're, you're talking about Canada, America, and other countries doing these things. Australia, if you know, is almost like a police state over COVID. So, um, so the disturbing thing is in the Anglo-American world, there's this authoritarianism, not so much in Britain, but definitely Canada, U.S., uh, Australia. But using the banks, yeah, the banks are so tied in with the government now. If the government calls them up and says, don't lend to this person, these companies, uh, suspend the, I mean, they suspended GoFundMe. GoFundMe is a source crowd, what's it called? Crowdsourcing, right? Where the truckers raised $10 million from a bunch of small contributions. And um, that was seized with, with the help of the GoFundMe management, unfortunately. So that, I mean, that's another terrifying thing. You can't even fund your civil disobedience or your speech without uh, the funds being uh, taken, stolen, crazy, terrible.
0: Yes. All right. Uh, last question, I think on this topic, before we move on, uh, we have Jeremy Klein on Instagram, and this is something I think about a lot. I think this is a great question. He asks, it seems like the left is able to sustain outrage for years while people like the truckers and more conservative groups have short outbursts outbursts that eventually fizzle out. What are your thoughts?
1: David, you want to
2: try that one? That's a good, that's a good question. Yeah, it is. I, it's a great question. I've, I've spent a lot of, um, uh, moments in my life thinking about that that um, you know behind the fact that that the us and other western governments are moving left incrementally over and have been doing so for decades uh, going back to the great depression and before that um, whereas you know, people who believe in freedom and and especially economic freedom are Fighting a rearguard action, um, they are uh, get outraged and like the truckers or the Tea Party at times when the government takes a step that's you know, too far for people to uh, just accept and they react and rebel. But it doesn't stick because there is no constant um, movement on, on the right that is comparable to what's on the left i mean the people on the left the groups and and the um organizations fight like tigers with each other all the time as people on the right do uh, in fact well actually worse I, I, the libertarian groups i've worked with um actually are cooperate much more peacefully than um i mean it's like a you know sometimes it seems like you know you guys are too nice we're all too nice <laughs> but um yeah the uh but we don't have an ideology. We don't have a clear direction, um, and I think the giant problem here, I've believed it ever since I began to uh, uh, think about objectivism, is altruism. People on the right who want to defend freedom are just, you know, stymied yeah. by the accusation: "This is selfish." Yeah. And they don't know a good answer. Ayn Rand answered it and she inspired millions of people in one way, but it's not trans that is not translated into um, it's translated into kind of in, uh, individualism and people are individualists, but they, they haven't gotten around the idea that part of your life has to be helping others. And that that's the noble thing, making money, making businesses, is you know, that's just ordinary life. I, and I think, I think that's the fundamental reason why, um, you know, the, the drift has been pretty steadily to the left for decades.
1: I would add, David, that you could, on the positive side, see this as a confirmation of the importance of having a goal. <laughs> to have, yes. To have gold, uh, you know, what do they call it? We call it goal-directed action. And, uh, you know, what did she say? Life is uh, self-sustaining and self-propelling and all this so, But the goal, and Ed Locke has done a lot of great great stuff on goal, the, the importance of naming a goal and then the steps to get there. Okay, so what is their goal? I mean, I hate to say it. It's not to liberate the worker. It's not to you know, save the planet. They are really nihilists. Their goal is to destroy civilization. I know that sounds a bit over the top, but that, that's my theory. And that's what socialism and fascism deliver beautifully, very effective systems for doing that. But you're right, David, on our side, who's pro-capital other than us? The problem with the right is they're not pro capitalists To their credit, they're anti-socialist or sometimes they're anti-liberal, or they call it anti-liberal, capital L. And uh, so on the political level, David, I think you named it right on the ethical level, the problem. On the political level, I'm thinking of Clinton in 1996 saying the era of big government is over. Okay, 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 that was good. But notice how defensive it is. Like, okay, so we have big government now. We're not going to shrink government back to its uh, you know pre-New Deal level. Where's that agenda? And of course, he was reacting to the Reaganites. Now here's another one. Trump, America will never become a socialist country. He did say that. He said that in the State of the Union. But again, notice the defensiveness. We won't become a socialist country. Yeah. Uh, Okay. How about a capitalist country? How about a president who says, we must become a capitalist country? What does that mean? That's the goal. What are the steps necessary? You're right, they won't go there. And so the momentum is on the side of those with a goal, even though, sadly, the goal has been demonstrated to be uh, really vicious, really nasty. And it's not as if the conservatives don't know that. They'll say, they'll say, what are you doing? Socialism has been tried and it doesn't work. And, and I always say to conservatives, stop complimenting your opponents. And they say, what do you mean complimenting? I, because when you say it doesn't work, you assume, <laughs> they, you assume they want peace and liberty and prosperity. And, and and they're just idiots and they don't know how to get the goal. That's not their goal. If you realize that's not their goal, that needs to be your goal. Peace, liberty, security. Anyway, uh, that's my that's my yeah. rant uh, on that. <laughs>
2: Okay, well um, said.
0: It reminds me, Dr. Salsman, I know you've said in other conversations that conservatives um, have been conserving. What have they been conserving? You've said, you know, in the past, it's been, you know, on Social Security or things like that. It's always moving to the left, what they're conserving. Yeah. That's yeah. always stuck with me since you said that the first time. So,
1: yeah. So the agenda setters are moving the country this way, and the conservatives are just saying, hey, don't go so fast. And they're, yeah. and they're conserving whatever happened in the last 20 years, but they're not setting the agenda. The other side is, I mean, to be fair, the closest I've seen to agenda setters in the right way are Reagan, Thatcher. And, uh, but that was only, that was only 10 to 12 years. So it, it, it was, it, it was okay. <laughs> David, it was like the enlightenment hundred years, not, <laughs> not bad, but it wasn't for 500 years. It was a hundred years, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but in those hundred years, so much was achieved. And same thing with Reagan Thatcher in those 12 years, so much was achieved, including dissipating the Soviet Union. Amazing. But it didn't it didn't stick.
0: Yes. And uh, we will for all of you who are posting questions, we will try and get back to some of these questions at the end. But we want to make time for our second topic. So we shall move on to uh, the possibility of war between Russia and the Ukraine. There's been a lot of talk about this. It's sort of all the buzz. So I think I'm handing it over to you, David, uh, for your introductory remarks.
2: Uh, okay, yes, um, I'm sure everyone who's reading the news is well aware of the conflict at the border of Ukraine, the uh, uh, hundred over 100,000, 130 or so Russian troops that are pitched there with armaments, um, mechanized weapons, uh, planes, etc., um, which, you know, you wouldn't think Russia would be doing unless it intended to invade. Um, it's a funny place to have just repeated exercises, uh, which is what it claims. Yeah. Um, but actually, the, the, I think one point of contact to keep in mind here is that uh, this, the war between Russia and Ukraine has been going on since 2014. In that year, the maiden, so-called maiden revolution, named that for a square in Kiev, um, got rid of a Soviet puppet as a premier and, uh, or the, you know, the head of state and replaced him with someone who was Western-oriented. And from that point on, um, Ukraine's uh, kind of interest has been more toward the European side, the Western side. It, actually, that started many years before that. They declared independence in 1991, immediately after the fall of the Soviet Union and uh, began talking with NATO almost immediately. But in 2014, um, this was a uh, um, a crux point apparently for Putin, and to have his puppet removed and someone uh, taking over um, who was uh, he couldn't control, and a kind of movement toward liberalizing uh, the economy and state to some degree. So uh, Russia, you know, in that year and next. Uh, uh, Crimea, and they invaded the uh, eastern provinces, Donbass. Uh, and so now now we're facing this um, – and, and they've been – for all that time since 2014, maybe before, they have been inundating Ukraine with uh, cyber war, uh, uh, hacks, um, false messages, all kinds of disinformation techniques that the Russians actually – Maybe the best in the world at now. Um, so, anyway, it's come, the, now we have this crisis on the border, and um, uh, there's been a lot of activity on the US side and on the side of the Allies. And so, let me just pose the question what, what should the US do at this point? Um, I should say, I'm not even close to being an expert in foreign policy. Um, uh, far from it. Uh, so, what I want to focus on is a couple of core principles um, in the objectivist political philosophy that should apply to foreign policy decisions. And then I'll mention some factors and draw a tentative conclusion about what to do. But um, this, is, this is, I'm confident of the principles. I'm not confident that I know enough of the strategic, military, historical, and other information that would have to inform um, an actual operating decision. So let me go back, and I'm going to take a deep dive here into political philosophy. Um, the, The point is that nations in the world exist in what the early liberal thinkers of the of John Locke's era called A State of Nature. A State of Nature was a thought experiment um, designed to say what if people had no government how could they uh, uh, form a government that would be legitimate and um, the agent of the combination of the people rather than uh, dominating the people as serfs in the medieval and every earlier civilization. And so the idea was a government. Well, in the state of nature, you may have friendly relationships with a lot of people, but you have no protection against predators, thieves, etc. And so you have to arm yourself, and each person has to be his own judge about how to resist, um, you know, violations of their rights, how to punish violators, and so forth. So that's kind of chaotic, and so we form a government, a unified system. Uh, under a single law that governs everyone in the country, everyone in the society. And um, they have the exclusive um, uh, function of deciding such disputes, punishing crime, uh, arresting people, and also d- deciding some civil disputes um, like property or tort issues. Um, and that, that's, I think, a very good explanation, not only about what justifies government, but what government does. I don't mean to say to the state of nature it's a thought experiment it never really existed but it's a good thought experiment but nations um don't have any common world government over them and i don't think that would be a good idea if, if, if we tried it uh for various reasons so nations um have to do deal with each other in ways that are very different from the way each of us as an individual citizen of the United States or whatever country we're in, deal with other people, other citizens, uh, knowing that we have the framework of law behind us and uh, a a government to execute the law. Um, So foreign policy, issues of foreign policy are much more driven by questions of strategy, history, Um, the particular circumstances of every different case. And um, the principles don't go as deep. Um, uh, They don't dictate as much at at the detail level as principles of domestic policy do. You know, the principle that domestic policy of government should not violate my rights. Well, okay, what about rent controls? open and shut question, it violates the rights of the landlords and tenants for that matter. It shouldn't shouldn't happen. We, the, the, it's an instant application, but in foreign policy, we don't have that same thing. So I wanna mention three principles that I think are, um, uh, should govern um, the uh, conduct of foreign policy by a free country. And um, I'm I'm really, um, um, you're grateful to uh, Roger Donway, who's, who was worked at, a, at the Foreign Policy Research Institute for a number of years before he joined the Atlas Society and um, did a lot of work. He has some great articles. I'm just going to uh, summarize uh, a few of the points. And actually, the three principles I'll mention. One is based on individualism. Uh, the national interest uh, that a government should pursue is based on and reflects the interests of its citizens. The government has no broader interest that can't be traced back one way or the other to the interests of its citizens. So the whole idea, the neocon idea of nation building um, to, you know, we have the power, let's do it, or the kind of altruistic sacrificial aid that we offered when disasters occur in places that have no bearing on our real interests um, are not in our national interest. They're not, they don't justify the use of taxpayer money and taxpayer um, other resources. So that's, that's principle one. National interest has to be understood. The nation should pursue its national interest, but that national interest has to be understood in fundamentally individualist terms. The second one is that um, is defense. Uh, the government's role is defending its citizens uh, domestically against criminals, but internationally against aggression from other countries. Uh, now, here it is where it starts getting really complicated because nations vary a great deal in size, population, wealth, etc. Um, Belgium is not going to invade the Soviet Union, or I'm sorry, Russia. You, you see how far back my, yeah, my sense of the world goes. Yeah. <laughs> Belgium I mean, is actually, not going to invade Russia or protect Ukraine. They don't have the manpower. They, you know, a tiny army. They're part of it, but what they are is part of the alliance, uh, NATO, um, and that makes sense in as a strategy of for defense of a country, to ally with people if there's a shared set of principles and goals um, that we stand for, you know, broadly speaking, some freedom, um, you know, the, the goals are never defined as, okay, we want, we're all behind an objective as government. Never happened, never, it won't happen in our lifetimes, I imagine, but a basically liberal system of protection of rights, um, international trade, uh, freedom of trade, uh, free speech, etc. And um, when in an alliance, it makes most sense to ally with the most powerful advocates of that position that you want want to, you know, protect yourself or whose principles um, are clearly uh, aligned with yours and against the sources of aggression. And so, um, you know, the U.S. is that superpower. Um, And because we can and because it, I think it advances our, our interests up to a certain point to have um, uh, uh, the, the, the the help of allies and the engagement of allies in a unified resistance to aggression from countries like Russia um, is justifiable. But the most important principle is the third one. The first one is the individualist nature of analysis of national interests. The second one is the need for defense. The third one, though, and most important, is the... is trade, the promotion of trade. Trade is a positive goal of foreign policy. And like in other aspects of ethics and political philosophy, this positive goal is more important than the negative goal of defense. Uh, So encouraging and expanding the possibilities of trade. I'll read you one um, passage from Ayn Rand. She spoke to this in, uh, this is from her uh, essay, The Roots of War. The essence of capitalism's foreign policy is free trade, the opening of the world's trade routes to free international exchange and competition among the private citizens of all countries dealing directly with one another. That's the ideal to strive for, and um, the, the thing we should be um the number one goal we should focus on, and I'm stressing this now because I, I don't see this often um, mentioned in foreign policy discussions, um, either about the local, you know, the current issue of Ukraine or or other ones. Um, I mentioned Roger Donway. He in, in a th- uh, three part essay he wrote in the in the 90s, he talked about creating a free world alliance, um, which it would combine not, it would be kind of an economic version of NATO. We have some some things sort of like that um, among the European, uh, Japanese, South Korea, and so forth, Um, but it could be made stronger. So, okay, now let me come back to try to apply these principles to the case of Russia and Ukraine. Uh, I think the first question is, is the Russian threat to Ukraine a threat to the u s?
1: Great question, David.
2: because we're not you know our foreign policy is um, we have to respond to not just active aggression you know when the um the bad guys swarm onto Nantucket, but the uh <laughs> but yeah. the threat of a ag- threat of aggression serious significant threat of aggression. Um, and I have to say, you know, in, in this case, no. If Russia invades Ukraine, it, I don't see any way in which this poses a direct threat to the U.S. Uh, in the sense of, of, I mean, it will there'll be consequences for U.S. citizens who are doing business in Ukraine. And that's always an issue. So yes, there's that for sure. Um, however, whether or not, or regardless of what the extent there's an, and um, A direct effect. I want to make a point that um, today we're looking at a world situation of increasing authoritarianism and emboldened authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. Russia and China, when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, um, both of them were poor countries, not, you know, not at all threat. Now they are. And they've they've grown. Putin has made Russia not necessarily wealthy, or I don't think he has much, but he's made it much more powerful militarily. China has um, um, grown tremendously in, in wealth and military power. So I think part of this is um, whether or not this is Putin's intention is they're testing the West by the threat to Ukraine and. Um, in that respect, I think, especially, we need, we have a, we have a credibility issue, and that credibility is in deficit now after the um, withdrawal from Afghanistan and some other bad um, episodes um, in recent U.S. history. Um, And, and, uh, you know, a, another factor here is Putin has made it very clear that he wants He wants to reconstitute the Soviet empire, the Russian empire, which goes back before the Soviet Union. Um, The (coughs) long history of Russia is one of empire building. By conquest, it was, you know, uh, under the Tsars, it was extended all the way to the Pacific, and uh, (coughs) the Soviets added a bunch of satellite states, um, many of which are now free, relatively free uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, and it, you know the, in, it's this kind of dream of conquest. So he's not interested in being part of a free world alliance, um, I don't think, and having great commercial relations um, among his citizens and the citizens of the US and of France and Germany. And so forth. he wants power, control. Um, whether for himself, probably yes, but certainly for Russia, he's got this Mother Russia thing going on. <laughs> so um, that's my answer to question one, is Russian is Russian threat to Ukraine a threat to the U.S.? Not directly, but indirectly, yes, and in the circumstances. The second question is, uh, is Ukraine a potentially valuable trading partner for us? in the sense of um, the important question, the uh, important issue of trade being a primary goal. And that's a harder question. It's uh, by – from what I understand, Ukraine is the poorest country in Europe. Um, In some freedom indices on economic freedom so forth, it does not rank all that highly. But it did declare its independence very clearly uh, and immediately after the fall of the Soviet Union. It has defended it over time Um, in the first decade from the 90s into the aughts. uh, They liberalized um, a lot of the economy, um, boosted up property rights protections. And now um, apparently there is considerable popular support for a line joining NATO if possible, joining the European Union, and being just a, a new Western nation, so to speak, not an ex-communist nation like the you know Lithuania, Latvia, some of the other captive nations, um, who have over the last thirty years have become have turned really turned around. Uh, another encouraging thing, I from what I see, and again I'm being tentative about all this, but you know, unlike Iraq, where There was no cultural basis for creating a market economy, rule of law, um, and so forth. I think Ukraine has much more of that um, capacity. So it's actually not a hopeless quest um, to do. And it is poor. But I think back to South Korea or Taiwan, when they turned a corner, and now they're Dynamos, dynamic places, and having you know another trading partner, another member of the free world um, with its population and um, its support, uh, I think we could. um, It would be greatly to our benefit. So a lot of ifs, ifs here, um, but I would tenderly say we should not send military to the Ukraine um, for just strategic or tactical reasons, it's too close. Um, We can't get soldiers in there um, to match Russia um, any easily way. But I think we should support uh, Ukraine with arms and with Allied um, building up uh, the the kinds of policies Biden has been promoting in the last month um, just maybe even more so. I would put no limit on the military, uh, the value of military equipment we send them to make partly to make Putin suffer if he does want to invade, make this a, a very bad um, situation, sort of like the Russian attempt to conquer uh, or, and run Afghanistan back uh, in the uh, back in the day. Um, and I think we should support the idea of encourage every way we can uh, free trade between US and particularly individuals and companies, private economic agents in our country and elsewhere, um, to engage with Ukraine and build up that. Uh, didn't that didn't work so much with China. We thought it would having trade with them would liberalize them. Um, we couldn't match the the authoritarian impulse. We may be able to in Ukraine. So I'll I'll just leave it there. Um, and be interested in comments.
0: Richard, do you have anything, any response before we?
1: Yeah, I do. I wanna endorse what David said about um, the whole idea of the nation state. Uh, It's a very new concept actually, maybe 1860s, 1870s, and that a foreign policy should be based on self-interest. I think one of the things that's interesting, I think objectivists have a hard I think they have a problem with the idea of national interest as a concept, but but, uh, it's okay. It's it's absolutely okay to say, as an individual going against other individuals, as you pursue my rational self-interest, in this world that David quite rightly describes as, it's not a world where there's one world government. There isn't. So each nation state acts like an individual So they should act like a rationally self-interested individual. What does that mean for America? If America at its root is capitalist, is constitutionalist, that's what it should be saying. We stand, they're not very good at it right now. We stand for constitutionally limited government that protects individual rights. We're the capitalists of the world. And in that regard, the Trump message of America first that phrase is basically Ayn Rand's foreign policy, America first. Notice not America only, not America at the expense of others, but stop sacrificing America, America first. Um, the, the president of the United States, the commander in chief, by the way, should be putting America first. Now, when he went to NATO and said, why are we supporting your national defense? Aren't you, he didn't put it this way. I would put it this way. Are you grown ups? If you're a grown up country, You should have your own military. Why are you outsourcing your military to the Pentagon? Why should America be providing your military? So I think actually since the Cold War, what is it? It's been over now 30 years. It's what a shame. The last 30 years should have been spent with the U.S. saying to Europe, provide your own defense, build up your own defense. If you fear Russia, build up your own defense. Actually what the U.S. did was the opposite. It told Ukraine, it told all the ex-Soviet satellites, don't worry, don't build up your military, give up your nukes. They actually told Ukraine to give up their nukes and we will provide the umbrella. So this is terrible, this is not a good idea. Now, let me put myself in Putin's position. This will sound weird coming from an objectivist. You know what Putin is thinking? The Cold War is over. We disbanded the Warsaw Pact. Well, we had to, because we collapsed. (laughs) um but nato didn't go away what the heck nato was formed to oppose the soviet union and its satellites and if you know the history when you go back to 1991 guess what at the time gorbachev said to reagan and others why don't we're disbanding warsaw Pact? why don't you disband nato and the reaganites said they said no and not only has NATO still not only does NATO still exist, it's expanded. So if you just Google NATO expansion, I think it's 30 <laughs> countries now. It's it's 30 countries now. And at the end of the Cold War, it was like 20 or 18 or something like that. Okay, so you know what Putin's thinking? He's thinking, oh my God, NATO still exists, it's expanding, and it's coming eastward to the border of Ukraine even. So he's thinking if Ukraine, which is not part of NATO, but they keep threatening that they will be, I think that's what he's worried about. And the foreign policy establishment in the U.S. is portraying Putin as an imperialist, whereas in fact, what's happening is Putin is worried that NATO is coming his way. That's exactly what happened. By the way, James Baker was Secretary of State in 1990. You know what he told Gorbachev? Gorbachev said, since we're dissolving, are you gonna dissolve NATO? (laughs) And Baker said, no. And he said, "Uh, so are you gonna freeze it in place? And Baker said, yes. And the the famous line was not one inch east. Know what that means? We will not expand NATO eastward toward Russia, except in the last 30 years, 18 countries have been added to NATO pushing eastward. So again, I, I'm no I'm not giving any brief for Putin. I don't think Putin is Stalin. Putin is not Stalin. He's just not. He is actually more worried that NATO is expanding toward his border, uh, not the other way around. So I think his whole motive is he doesn't want Ukraine and NATO. Period. That's it. It's not, it's not. He's the beginning of a Hitler, you know, takeover of Europe. That's not what's happening. The other point I would name is David. Absolutely right. I, I looked up in the Ayn Rand lexicon, Iran's view on foreign policy. The first word that came up was free trade. I yeah. thought that was. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Now, now here's what's weird. If that's true, I think I think that's a big part of foreign policy. But it's also identify allies who have your philosophy and defend them. Like, so I think the US should have helped Britain, you know, defeat defeat Hitler, but free trade. Now on those grounds, you would say Trump had a bad foreign policy. He was right to say NATO Mm -hmm. pay for your own defense. Mm -hmm. He was wrong to go protectionist. And um, you could say that even Obama was wrong to impose a sanctions on Russia sending uh, Nat Gas to Germany, the, um, I forget what it's called, you know, the pipeline. The Nord 2. The Nord 2, and notice what Biden did. The minute Biden got in, he allowed Nord 2. Now, of course, he shut down energy production in the U.S., which was terrible. terrible. But David, from our perspective, the idea of, no, let's have free trade between Russia and Germany, that, that, that Putin would have liked that. He would say, wow, okay, the US is not blocking. Anyway, I'll stop there. But uh, uh, my view is the US does not have a self-interest in helping Ukraine. I, I checked the numbers, by the way. The Economic Freedom Index of Ukraine and Russia is identical. So those of you who think Ukraine is this you know, free market capitalist country that we need to protect against this terrible Russian... They're they're identical. They're both corrupt in some degree. They're both unfree to some degree. They're basically the same. So that isn't the the that is not the issue. And and the other thing I noticed is well I mentioned the NATO expansion that um, uh, Putin is worried about that. The famous Putin quote was, "The worst day in Russian history <laughs> was when the Soviet Union fell apart." Yeah. Wow. And so many people take that to mean. Everything he's done since then is to rebuild the empire. I don't I don't think that's true. I think he's a realist enough to realize that ain't gonna happen. We are not gonna regain these satellites. The Ukraine thing is not the beginning of me taking over 14 countries, uh, a la Hitler. I think it's, defen- it's totally defensive. I think Putin's just doesn't want Ukraine and NATO. That's it. All right, I'll stop there. <laughs>
2: Yeah, just a couple of points I, I was reading about that not in one inch of the east thing, and apparently it's there's a good deal of controversy about who said that and what was meant at the time and yeah. whether it was meant so um yeah but uh but the main point I want to make is that um yeah if uh Ukraine joined NATO then we'd be NATO would be surrounding Russia on yeah on two sides.
1: Yes, that's uh, exactly what Putin part, sees on the... Part yeah. of the
2: south and, and yeah. the eastern border, the old iron. Okay. But yeah. I, I don't believe anyone thinks, even maybe Putin, that the Romanians, the Hungarians, the Lat, Latvians are going to pose a threat to him, that they're going to... All of them are adjacent to Russian territory. Right. Belarus and um, there's been no threat, no indication of a threat. That's right. The US has helped them weaponize against Russian threats. Yeah, that's um, right. And so I, I go back to, um, you know, it, one of the issues here uh, is distinguishing your friends from your enemies. And motivation has a lot to do with that. And I think Putin's motives are authoritarian. Uh, it's corrupt as hell, um, and what you said about the um, freedom index—I've looked at a couple, and I got different uh, answers on this. So uh, I'm not—I'm not sure. Uh, and but if 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 you're right about that, I mean, if that's if you, the index you cited was good, yeah, it really undermines any any case. Uh, I mean, it, it certainly tells against the case I was making. So.
1: Well, uh, David, I looked at Ukraine, Russia, China, and U.S. One quick uh, fun fact. The Economic Freedom Index of Russia versus the U.S., in other words, how free is Russia versus the U.S.? 2002, it was 62% as free as the U.S. 2016, it was 67% as free. The latest reading, it is 78% as free. In other words, the two lines are Russia's going up in economic freedom and the US is going down. Oh. And the US is still freer, but nobody knows these numbers. They just portray Putin as Stalin, and they just portray the US as you know the equivalent of Hong Kong. The US <laughs> is becoming less free. The Soviet Union, the well, I just said it, Soviet Union. <laughs> Russia. I'm, I'm with you, David, I have a senior moment. The Soviet Union, <laughs> they are becoming, believe it or not, freer. That's hard to believe, but look it up. Cato, no, it was Heritage, Heritage Index of Economic Freedom. Yeah,
2: I, I was looking at the Fraser Index.
1: But well, the, have... the, the conservatives, last point, Abby, quickly, I'll say, the conservatives notice will say, America's biggest enemies are Russia, China, and Iran. Perhaps, ideologically, but if you look territorially, none of those countries have really invaded anybody since the Cold War, they just haven't. So they're terrible, they're awful regimes. But if we're talking about imperialism and you know taking over in a Hitler-like fashion, it really has not happened. So what's going on here? And meanwhile, the US doesn't care about its border on the south with Mexico, Why would it care more about the Ukrainian border than the Texas border? The priorities are, are wrong, I think. And it has to be America first in a truly generally philosophic way.
0: I think uh, those are all great points. And obviously these are very intricate topics because we have (laughs) run out of time, but I wanna encourage you guys, for those of you, we didn't get to your questions. um, Our scholars are on Clubhouse. It's an app uh, you can download um, from our events page and from our outside emails. Uh, They do a lot of Q and A, longer Q and A periods on our clubhouses. So I wanna thank you again, uh, David and Richard. These are amazing as always. And I wanna thank all of you for joining us today on all of our platforms. Again, I'm Abby Beringer, student program manager. If you enjoyed this content, like I said, check out our other content atlassociety.org backslash now playing is where you can watch more of these webinars or backslash events for all of our upcoming events. Uh, And please consider making a tax-deductible donation at atlassociety.org backslash donate. Uh, And tune in next week when co-founder of Reason, Bob Poole, will be our guest on the Atlas Society Asks. Thank you, everybody, for joining us.
1: Thank you, Abby. Thanks, Abby. Thanks, everyone. Good to see you, David. Thank you.